Hello, and welcome to Military History Inside Out, brought to you by War Scholar and located at warscholar.org. We talk about military history from ancient times to modern and everything in between. I'm Chris Alvarez, and thank you for listening. I'm speaking with David DeHaas, co-author of The Earps Invade Southern California, Bootlegging Los Angeles, Santa Monica, and the Old Soldier's Home, published by University of North Texas Press, July 21st, 2020. Thank you for speaking with me. Thanks, Chris. Nice to meet you. Yeah, so, and I'll just note for my uh, listeners, you know, normally we're, it's obviously military history podcast and the connection here with uh, the famous um, Old West Earps. And this book is that uh, it, it revolves around the old soldier's home, which is where a lot of um, Civil War veterans and also, I guess, Mexican War and other American War veterans uh, were housed in this huge facility over in California. And uh, we'll we'll talk about that, right? Yes, correct, yes. So first, how did you get into studying and writing a book about um, the Earps and this bootlegging operation in this old soldier's home? Well, I've pretty much been interested in, you know, Wild West history and the Earps. And uh, since I was a young child, uh, you know, our my generation, we were kind of brought up on all the old TV shows, uh, you know, Cheyenne and Maverick and Bonanza and the Wired Earp Show and Rifleman. And uh, so uh, always as a, from a young child, I always loved the Wild West. Uh, I have old uh, photos from birthday parties as a young child from almost when I could walk, you know, dressed up as a cowboy. And so I've always had that interest. And uh, my grandmother, um, when I was young, growing up with, with her, she loved her favorite TV shows were Gunsmoke and uh, Bonanza. Mm-hmm. And it was on every Sunday night, as I remember. And um, uh, as soon as that came on, everyone had to either leave the house or sit with her quietly and watch the show. So <laughs> I have very fond memories of watching uh, all the West, the Western TV shows with my grandmother. Yeah, and then I just, you know, the interest kind of progressed. And um, in uh, uh, most recently, in the 1990s, uh, the movies Wide Urban Tombstone with Curse Russell came out. Mm-hmm. And uh, I walked in, uh, I'm an emergency physician, I walked into the ER one day, and one of our nurses told told me, uh, hey, you know, there was an ERP in one of on that bed over there the other day. And that really uh, made everything so real for me. I said, really? And then yeah, I had known the ERPs had been uh, in Southern California, mm-hmm. and I was uh, working in the ER in San Bernardino at the time, and the family all lived right around the hospital I was working at. And I did a little more research, and I found out that White Earp's brother James and his uh, sister Adelia and sister-in-law Allie Earp, who was married to Virgil, were all buried in the cemetery right next to the hospital I'd been working at for several years. Mm-hmm. And I looked into it a little further, and White Earp's mother and um, sister-in-law uh, were buried in the Pioneer Cemetery a couple miles just south of the hospital. Mm-hmm. And then I found out that Morgan Earp, White's brother, who was uh, killed and t- murdered uh, in Tombstone, was buried in a, a cemetery just a, a few miles east of that. Mm-hmm. So I went and visited all those places, and then it just kind of took off from there. Mm-hmm. And one of the interesting things I noted was that, uh, I guess, the Nick, Nicholas, the, the father of all this large Earp family, had been, uh, I guess, in the Mexican War, and he was a recruiter in the Civil War, and three of the Earps enlisted. And I guess Wyatt was trying to enlist, but he was only 13 at the time and kept running off trying to enlist and got sent home over and over. Is that correct? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. That's all true. Um, yeah. Nicholas was uh, injured in the 
in the Mexican-American wars. I remember, I think he was kicked in the groin by a donkey or a horse or something, and he had bad injuries. And Wyatt actually got his name from uh, one of Nicholas's, uh, uh, I don't know, was it a captain or military, uh, someone in the military there he was uh, work, uh, fighting with in the Mexican-American War. Uh, his name was, uh, I, th- I believe it was uh, Wyatt Berry or something like that uh, escaping me right now but uh, uh, that's where Wyatt's name uh, came from uh, from someone that Nicholas admired during his uh, Mexican-American war years mm-hmm. so they're big tie-ins all the brothers they all served in co- different capacities there's a half-brother Newton who served in the Civil War Virgil and James are both served in the Civil War, mm-hmm. and uh, James was pretty severely injured, and the rest of his life had disabilities from his time in the Civil War. Mm-hmm. And uh, yes, all true. And so, um, and then I guess the connection with this old soldier's home is that Newton, uh, the father, and and I guess Nick, or sorry, Nick, the father, and Newton, uh, the son, ended up in this ho- this home, right? Exactly. Yeah, yeah. Both Newton and uh, Nicholas ended up uh, in the home. In fact, uh, Nicholas died in the home and is buried in the cemetery adjacent to it. The it's currently called the L.A. National Cemetery, but it was the Soldiers' Home Cemetery. A lot of very famous uh, Civil War, Mexican American War, Spanish American War, uh, Indian War veterans are all buried in that cemetery. And we have an Appendix 1 in our book where we discuss it all through our book, but in Appendix 1 we go through a lot of the other uh, soldiers that are buried there. And then a city developed by the name of Sautel around the home. First came the home, and then you know, there was a lot of money there. A lot, of, So it attracted businesses. And then James Earp uh, moved into the town nearby. Uh, Newton Earp, the half-brother that you mentioned, he actually was in several of the soldier's home. He was, uh, uh, in his later years, he moved up to Napa. There's one up at Napa. And then he was also in uh, Fort Dodge, too, in the uh, soldier's home there. So, yeah. And again, correct me if I'm wrong, I think I read that the regular army had homes for veterans, but um, up up to a point, volunteers in the, mili- in the U.S. military did not have a home, you know, a veteran's home. And I think, was this one of the, one of the early uh, attempts at, at providing for these volunteers? Yeah, yeah, it was, uh, yes. Uh, uh, the first home was in, uh, I believe it was 1866 in Togus, Maine. After the Civil War, there were a lot of disabled uh, veterans, injured veterans from the war, and no one to help them out. So they started to develop these soldiers' homes around and the first one was 1866, right after the Civil War in Togus, Maine. Mm-hmm. And uh, uh, these were places where veterans that had been injured and, you know, unable to care for themselves, but some of them and, uh, had a place to go and uh, some assistance. Mm-hmm. And um, and I, I will note, uh, just for readers, just so, so they know that this book, it's not just a pop history. It's like it it has a lot of footnotes, a lot of um, photographs, and I guess illustrations. Like it's a very, uh, I don't want to say it's acad- it's academic, but that makes it sound like it's dry. It might be dry, but it, I think it's it's a really interesting uh, read. I'll just mention that. Yeah, it's very well researched. It was two years in the making, and 
Um, I don't know if you're familiar with my co-author, Don Shopwood. He's published several books on herpes, known as Virgil Earp's biographer. And he's published, you know, hundreds of articles and uh, probably close to 20 different books. And he's, he's a, an amazing researcher. And so everything is footnoted. We have an extensive bibliography. Uh, pretty much everything we say comes with a footnote for those who are interested and can uh, find out where we got the information. Mm-hmm. and the sources we used. It, it's all there. And then I'm a collector of the Wild West, and um, I, I have a pretty extensive Wild West collection, and uh, some of the uh, items and photos in the book come from my private collection that nobody's really ever seen before. Mm-hmm. They're kind of hidden away in the collection. So uh, a few of the items, uh, there's a photo of Adelia Earp in there that's a never-before-seen photo of her. You know, I say never-before-seen, obviously people have seen it, but... <laughs> You know, it's been buried away in collections for years. It's never been published anywhere until this book. Hmm. So tell me, um, tell me about the Sawtell community and the the soldiers' home in this time period we're talking about. Yeah. Okay. Well, uh, as I mentioned, in about 1866, the first soldiers' home was uh, uh, opened in Togus, Maine, and then um, subsequently it was realized that uh, you know if this isn't enough. We need these things all around the country. And one by one, uh, more and more were uh, built. And then all of a sudden, it was realized that California, uh, they need one out west. And uh, eventually, uh, it's a long series of events all discussed in the book that led to this particular location. But there happened to be a lot of good land there. And it was between L.A. and Santa Monica City had just started to form. So... um, they had enough land, and some land was donated, and uh, a, lot, a lot of it by people who owned it, the surrounding land, and realizing that if they built a home there, they could sell houses around it and open business and make a fortune, you know, on the surrounding areas. Hmm. So uh, uh, that's that's what happened. And uh, in um, it was in 1875 that Santa Monica was founded, and then in 1888, 1889. Uh, the Pacific, the Soldiers' Home, called the Pacific Branch of the Soldiers' Home, was opened uh, about halfway between L.A., uh, well, actually closer to Santa Monica, about three, four miles, four miles east of uh, Santa Monica and you know, about 15 or so west of Los Angeles. Mm-hmm. So it was kind of in between. And that opened, and then with all the soldiers there, it kept getting bigger and bigger, and, and some of them had families and all they started selling lots around the soldiers' home. And that became uh, the city of Sattel, the town of Sattel. Mm-hmm. Uh, we talk about how it was named, why it's named Sattel. And slowly they sold lots there. And then uh, the soldiers' home's families, uh, the soldiers, excuse me, the, fa- uh, the families of the soldiers living in the home, some of them you know, moved nearby, just like James Earp did. His father and his half-brother Newton were there. So he moved to Sattel, too. And then, obviously, businesses flourished around the area. There was a lot of money so, so, um, flowing in the area uh, because, you know, the soldiers all had pension checks coming in. Mm-hmm. And they really had not, not a lot to do there. It was kind of an isolated area at the time. Hard to believe today because it's <laughs> surrounded by Hollywood, Beverly Hills, uh, Malibu, Santa Monica, Century City, some of the wealthiest real estate on the planet. Mm-hmm. But at that time, it was, a, you know, just uh, fields, uh, farms and fields and barley as i remember around the area mm-hmm. uh so yeah so then the town of santa monica began to develop and um what the soldiers would go there for their entertainment and spend their money in that area 
I'm speaking with David DeHaas, co-author of The Earps Invade Southern California, Bootlegging Los Angeles, Santa Monica, and the Old Soldier's Home. You can find more information about the book at the University of North Texas Press website, and David DeHaas' email is in the show notes. If you like this podcast, Military History Inside Out, so far, please subscribe to it and rate it if you can. If you want more military history ranging from the ancient to the modern, please visit warscholar.org or militaryhistorypodcast.com to sign up for my weekly newsletter and keep up with my latest posts. You can also find written interviews and my social media links there. You can find the links to my other podcasts at fullcontactnerd.com and technologyinspace.com. Now back to the podcast. And I read that, uh, so a couple of things. One, that, um, there was a lot of illicit activity because you had these, you know, you had these soldiers with, with money to, to burn in a sense. And, um, you know, they wanted to have fun, I guess. Yeah, exactly. That's pretty much how a sautel came about. Um, the soldiers had money to burn and, um, you know, a lot of them enjoyed gambling and drinking and, uh, you know, there was no, they obviously didn't do that in the soldier's home itself. Mm-hmm. So, uh, they ended up in Sattel, Santa Monica, Los Angeles, Long Beach, spending their money. And, uh, there was a street that developed, uh, uh we talk about in the book, Fourth Street, and that led into the soldier's home. Mm-hmm. But prior, uh, prior to, it's currently named Sattel Boulevard, mm-hmm. but, um, on, on Fourth Street, a lot of, shops and markets and, um, you know, bars opened up. The problem was a law was passed that no alcohol could be sold within a mile and a half of the soldier's home. Mm-hmm. They tried to outlaw alcohol because they knew the veterans would get themselves into trouble uh, with bars around there. <laughs> and so those that distributed alcohol had to do so legally. And this is where the, the you know, the speakeasies, the, the bootlegging happened. Mm-hmm. Uh, the blind tiger, the blind pig, which we talk about in our book, and uh, these uh, illegal uh, alcohol outlets mm-hmm. opened up for, you know, alcohol and gambling. And for those that are familiar with um, uh, the old movie and Broadway play, Guy, uh, Guys and Dolls, we kind of call our book, which we talk about at the beginning of the book, it's kind of a Guys and Dolls West Coast style. The story is pretty much the same as that story, but that occurred on the East Coast, and um, this occurred on the West Coast. And one more interesting thing real quick is the star of the movie there was Marlon Brando, and Frank Sinatra was in it, too. Mm-hmm. If you, I don't know if you remember that or not. Yeah. Um, and Marlon Brando's character was Sky Masterson, and it was actually patterned after Bat Masterson, mm-hmm. his character. The, the gentleman who wrote the stories which became the play in the movie uh, knew, was friends of Bat Masterson. And Bat Masterson you know, was another one of the more famous sheriffs and marshals of the Old West, and he was a good friend of Wider. So on the East Coast, you have Batmasterson, essentially, and his friends or whatever, uh, this guys and dolls scenario happening. On the West Coast, you have Wyatt and Virgil Earp and James and Newton all pretty much participating in the same thing at the same time, illicit alcohol, prostitution, gambling, but happening on the West Coast. The only thing is nobody's ever made a play or movie about the West Coast and the Earp brothers, but... Hmm. um, Guys and Dolls involved the West Coast, same story. So I also, I think it was in the book, as I was looking through it, um, that it was kind of, in a sense, Sautel and the home were a, a, 
a tourist attraction for people who wanted to meet these veterans and, you know, just maybe talk to them or just see them. Yeah, yeah, exactly. That, that's another. There were so many factors that just happened to come together all at one time to make this story happen. And that was another one. Um, uh, I'm sure if you look through the book, you saw how beautiful the soldiers' home is. Just mm-hmm. beautiful buildings, beautiful grounds. It, it was like a park-like setting. And tourist groups used to come from L.A. and Pasadena. There were buses. We show a photo of a, a group there, I believe it was in 1910 there, uh, just coming to meet, like you said, to meet the soldiers, and they would be dressed up in their uniforms, and they would drive in from all over just to go And What would they do is they'd stop at the soldiers' home, and then the next stop was Santa Monica to, at the beach. And, you know, there was the pier there and a beautiful Arcadia Hotel. We talk about Arcadia and the hotel there. And uh, just a, it was a resort area. So they would stop off and visit the soldiers and then head off to the beach from there. Mm-hmm. And then they'd go back into the, you know, in the empire or wherever they lived afterwards. So, yeah, yeah. So we, we've mentioned, I don't think we've directly talked about the Earps bootlegging operation and how the, you know, Nicholas and Newton sort of got it started. We, we've, we've touched on it, but not gotten into it. Do you want to talk a little more about that? About, about the bootlegging, how that started? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, of course. So... What happened was the veterans were there and they had, you know, a canteen and, you know, on, they were served meals and they ate there, but it was a pretty boring environment for them. There was checkers and things like that, but, um, there was no inter- real entertainment and uh, places to go. So what happened is the, the, the town is 4th Street developed and they had, you know, barber shops and stores and all the usual stuff, but it was illegal to sell alcohol by state law. So, Anyone who did so um, had to do it illegally, and this is kind of where some of the tie-ins with the, the movie again, Guys and Dolls. I don't know if you saw it, but it was, you know, it was kind of serious stuff, but it was kind of comedic too. And the same thing in our book. Uh, there are so many the, the people that sold and ran these blind pigs and blind tigers, speakeasies. They couldn't do it up front, so they had all kinds of gimmicks there. They could sell the um, out, sell alcohol to the veterans and make money. And uh, there was a gentleman who was riding a bike around town, and he would stop off and take orders from veterans for alcohol. And uh, he'd go into Santa Monica and drive back and deliver it. And uh, there was a barber who filled his coffee pot full of uh, alcohol. And whenever you know people came for a haircut, they you know get their coffee and alcohol with it. <laughs> and uh, shop owners found all kinds of ways to. Uh, Sell, sell to the veterans because there was a lot of money to be had. Eventually, there were several thousand veterans living there. And not only that, the employees, there were hundreds of employees there. So um, the veterans had nowhere else to go. So they they would find a way to uh, make their ways to these blind pigs or illicit alcohol dealers and to drink and gamble. And there was prostitution involved. And um, But... Uh, Occasionally, the police would get wise to it and break it down. And and how did the Earps get in? Because they ran an operation too, right? Is that correct? Yes, yeah. James Earp. So the father uh, Nicholas and Newton were uh, in the home, and James was getting up there in age two, and it appears that he wanted to be near his family, and so he moved into Sawtell uh, nearby, and then he opened up a blind pig uh, operation. Mm-hmm. And he would uh, sell alcohol to the veterans, and they would come there to pay, play, you know, gamble and play cards and uh, 
And these these guys did quite well. You know, they they would get when they got fined. You know, they would just pay the fine as a part of doing business. You know, it's just a cost of business, and mm-hmm. the fine that was charged them was nothing compared to the income they were making. And one of the things that got us to write the book is um, we found out uh, uh, that actually Virgil Earp paid, um, spent time there too. Mm-hmm. It was it's, it was you know it's kind of known that Newton lived in the home and died, or uh, excuse me, Nicholas, the father, lived and died in the home that Newton was there at one point, but never realized the extent of it, how long they were there. And uh, you know most people that are really pretty familiar with the Earps don't know this story. You can look at any of the major books, and it's plot tells pretty much never mention of the old soldier's home. Occasionally there's an entry in an index just to say that Nicholas died there. But this is a, a significant period. It was the Earps' last hurrah together as a family, mm-hmm. and, and they all participated in it. Wyatt, not as much. But for a period of nearly 10 years, from 19, early 1900 to about 1910, mm-hmm. uh, the family was, for the most part, together there, uh, uh, until, you know, father died and Virgil died in 1905. But yeah, it was a significant episode in their life, and you won't find it in any other book anywhere, believe me. So that's kind of what got us to write the story, because we couldn't find it anywhere else. What uh, Are there any well-known Civil War veteran or other American War veterans who were at the home around this time? Yeah, yeah, there's some, some big names there. Um, Jeremiah Johnson uh, uh, died at the home. Um, and I'm sure, I don't know if you ever saw the movie uh, with uh, Robert Redford. Uh, he he died at the home. Now, in later years, after that movie came out, the Jeremiah Johnson, uh, there was a lot of publicity at all, and he ended up being exhumed, and his body moved to uh, Cody, Wyoming. But he died in the home, and um, uh, I, I don't know if you've ever heard of J.V. Brighton, but he was a famous, another famous uh, Western character. He's actually the one that, uh, and we talk about all this in the book, uh, the one that killed um, Ike Clanton, who was involved pretty much started the gunfight at the OK Corral. Hmm. In later years, he's the one that tracked him down and, and ended up killing him. And, um, yeah, there's there's a significant characters of the Old West that are there, Civil War veterans. Hmm. Uh, we, like I said, our Appendix 1 is a long one-by-one yeah. uh, one, uh, list of some of the names that were there involved in, uh, that were famous individuals that lived or, or died in the home. Hmm. Um, uh, one, a member of the cowboy gang that was involved in, uh, the Earp's tombstone difficulties, uh, <laughs> he died and buried there, uh, Nick Hughes. Mm-hmm. And, um, there was a famous, uh, Old West con man, uh, gambler by the name of Doc Bags. I don't know if you've ever heard of him or not, but, mm-hmm. uh, he was part member of the Soapy Smith gang at one time. And Virgil Earp was involved with him in, I believe it was Iowa in early years. Uh, anyway, his uh, father was also a pretty famous Western character in Montana and the vigilantes there. Hmm. And uh, his father lived there for a couple of years and ended up dying there. Nick Hughes was, you know, documented. Or, uh, sorry, uh, Doc Baggs himself was there with his father at the time. He didn't live there, but hmm. or die there. Yeah, there was a lot of famous uh, Civil War individuals involved in all the wars, the Indian Wars, the... Uh, the uh, Mexican-American Wars, the uh, Civil War, of course. M- most at that time period were Civil War uh, veterans. Mm-hmm. Did they accept any Confederate veterans, or was it all Union? Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. There was, in fact, some 
fights broke out because of that. Yeah, there were Confederate veterans. And the fact, um, we have a story in the book about um, two brothers. One was uh, one was a, a, a Confederate veteran, and uh, and there was a Union soldier, and they were both in, in the home at once. And there's another story about a father and son who were there and uh, at the same time. And one interesting story that, that Don dug up, there were two brothers that uh, hadn't seen each other for 40, 50 years. Uh, they had, didn't even pretty much know each other anymore. Both ended up at the um, home at the same time, and somebody knew both of them and said, are you by any chance interviewed, related to, uh, and he gave the last name, and the guy said, oh, sounds familiar and they went up and <laughs> talked to each other and realized they were brothers that hadn't seen each other for 40 50 years whatever it was mm -hmm. uh, so there's a lot of little interesting stories of like that throughout the book uh that just kind of heartwarming events uh, there's one story about a civil war a veteran that um his girlfriend or you know when they were children mm -hmm. were kind of in love each other with each other but never got married they were young kids and then in later years, he went back from the home to Michigan to uh, visit with family and ended up running into her, and her husband had died by then. And uh, they ended up starting to go out and ended up getting married after, uh, you know, 60 years apart or 70 years apart. Uh, wow. And so there's a lot of neat little stories like that throughout the book. Do you know, was the, um, was the U.S.? army or military were were they at all investigating any of this bootlegging or any of this activity well yeah that's a good question uh, because there were a lot of overlapping jurisdictions here so uh, there were different you know there were local constables there were uh, the police there were there's um federal you know because that was a federal issue there but they they were only allowed to patrol the home itself, but they had really no authority once it came to the town. Mm. And it's a really complicated structure. And again, it's it's in the book, but um, like who was in charge? You know, Sotel initially was under the jurisdiction of the city of Santa Monica, so their police would come over to uh, when problems would happen, but also Los Angeles. And Sotel ended up being coming part of Los Angeles. Now it's currently West Los Angeles, mm. uh, the area. So there were a lot of overlapping jurisdictions. There was Long Beach, uh, Santa Monica, uh, even Pasadena. There would be officials and from all those different jurisdictions kind of not knowing exactly who is responsible for what. Hmm. And then when the town of Malibu came about in the later in the 1900s, uh, you know, 1909-ish, you know, then they were involved too. So there uh, at one point, we talk about in the book, there was a a robbery that occurred at, the, I believe it was the post office there, and it involved stamps. So now you also bring in the uh, federal agents. It was, there were so many issues involved in very, uh, a number of different uh, organizations involved in tracking down the guys who committed the, the robbery. So it was, it was kind of complex, but it is all discussed in the book. Mm-hmm. Do you know if, uh, wasn't the, the superintendent, or I forget the title of whoever ran the home, wasn't he kind of a prominent Civil War veteran or yes. something? Yeah, I think you're probably talking about LaGrange, and he spoke, we talked with him throughout the book. Now, 
Um, there were others too, but he was kind of the main governor of the home, I guess you call it, at the time. There was some talk about what the real title is. Yeah, no, he was a pretty well-known Civil War uh, uh, general and uh, seemed like a pretty good guy. He he was against alcohol. He was against the veterans getting going out and getting drunk and getting in trouble. But then he also seemed to be a caring individual, too. He, he realized that it was very boring for them there. They had nothing to do. They got tired after a while of playing checkers, and he felt that they should be able to get some alcohol when they wanted. Um, there was an experiment there where they served the near beer in the canteen at the home, uh-huh. and uh, but there there were a lot of forces going on at the same time. There was a women's Christian temperance uh, union, uh, carry nation, and all, and there was a big prohibition um, push. So there are a lot of fighting going on. You know, it's uh, difficult. But the Lagrange was was a, seemed to be a pretty good guy, and he he came down hard on the veterans that went out and got drunk and got into trouble. Mm-hmm. But he also saw their side of it too, mm-hmm. and he he you know he outright said that you know it's not fair to these guys. They we trap them here in this building. They can't go anywhere. They can't drink. They can't gamble. They can't do all the things they love to do. And you know, did as young men. That's, those are the types of th- entertainment that people had mm-hmm. in the Wild West. Gamblers were actually well thought of in the Wild West, and mm-hmm. saloons were part of it all. Mm-hmm. Um, maybe, you know, probably higher up there than lawyers and some other uh, professions. <laughs> the, the professional gamblers were pretty well respected uh, in the mid-1800s. And um, so, yes, he, he seemed to be a pretty good guy, uh, LaGrange. He was the governor of the home at that time. Do you know if um, at this period with all these veterans there, did, did do you know if many historians showed up and just tried to write articles or get stories about, you know, from these guys? Well, wouldn't that have been great? Yeah, that, yeah. I, I don't think a whole lot. But there was a, some pretty good newspaper coverage. Hmm. The Herps were very well known uh, at that time, and pretty much anything they got involved in, uh, was was covered by the local newspapers. Mm-hmm. And then one of the sources we use that really hasn't been tapped a whole lot, um, there's the George Parsons diary, and I don't know if you've ever heard of him or not. No. And he was a pretty amazing guy. In fact, Don calls his diaries probably the history one of history's most important documents. This gentleman pretty much kept a diary his whole life, day to day, everything. And he was in Tombstone at the time of the gunfight. He was good friends of the Earths. He documented things every day, you know, one entry, Doc, John Ringo and Doc Holliday almost got into it on the street yesterday, uh, looked like, you know, a shootout was about to happen and it was broken up. And I mean, day to day happenings. And that has been very well published. The years he was in Tombstone, because people have great interest in those years. But the thing is, he continued with his diaries and he was one of those guys that, did a lot of important stuff in his lifetime, uh, Parsons, and nobody ever really, uh, there's published, and I have sitting right next to me several copies of uh, the transcribed years of his diaries from uh, 1879-ish to 1887, covering the tombstone years. But he continued on all the way into L.A., and that's one of the sources we mined for the book and found a lot of information. They're difficult to get. They're difficult to read. His handwriting isn't the best, and it takes time. But we went through several of his diaries for the years involved in our story and were able to find a lot of important information there. He documents being on the in Santa Monica and Sawtell and running into Wyatt Earp 
and they had a nice discussion, and White Earp thanked him for uh, standing up for him. There was an article that somebody wrote about White that wasn't too kind, that he was a bad man and a tough guy in the Old West, and Parsons wrote back to the newspaper, and it was published um, uh, in the L.A. papers at the time that, you know, White was a good guy, and if it wasn't for brave men like him, uh, the, the we the West would have been in a much different place. And uh, it's funny how he ran into White and Sautel mm -hmm. there, and they had a discussion, and he documents it in his diary. But these are not published anywhere. To get those, they're, they're housed in the uh, Arizona Historical Society, the Pioneer Society there. I've actually had them in my hands. My wife and I sat down and read through some of them a few years ago. But nobody really cares about those years. They care about the tombstone years. But he wrote all the way up... Uh, uh, pretty much until his death, and those are accessible. Um, you know, you have to go to Arizona to read it or um, pay for copies. It can get kind of expensive to mm. get copies made. So uh, to answer your question, please, I, I don't know if anybody who actually sat down and went and interviewed each of these guys. I imagine probably somebody did. There are, uh, we. there's the Santa Monica History Museum, and I spent a, a day there going through their archives, and there are some person, you know, that type of thing, interviews with some, some of the people around. But uh, I wish there were more, especially with uh, J.V. Brighton, the detective that killed uh, Clanton. It would be really interesting to hear his side of the story and exactly what happened. He, he caught Canton, Clanton rustling in, I believe it was 1887. Mm. And uh, he tried to arrest him. Clanton tried to escape, and he shot him, mm. shot him dead as he was trying to escape. I'm speaking with David DeHaas, co-author of The Earps Invade Southern California, Bootlegging, Los Angeles, Santa Monica, and The Old Soldier's Home. You can find more information about the book at the University of North Texas Press website, and David DeHaas' email is in the show notes. If you like this podcast, Military History Inside Out, so far, please subscribe to it and rate it if you can. If you want more military history ranging from the ancient to the modern, please visit warscholar.org or militaryhistorypodcast.com to sign up for my weekly newsletter and keep up with my latest posts. You can also find written interviews and my social media links there. You can find the links to my other podcasts at fullcontactnerd.com and technologyinspace.com. And now back to the podcast. Do you know, uh, this par Parsons, um, did, does he write at all about military issues at all? Was he in the military or dealt with it? No, I don't believe he's in the military at all. So I, I don't think he, he specifically went into that. But let me tell you one more really interesting thing about Parsons. Mm -hmm. Um, and most people don't know this. They, I mean, there's some really important stuff he did through the years besides the Parsons diary. Uh, he was one of the guys that in the late 1800s, early 1900s, um, realized a lot of people were dying going through the desert. There was no water there. And he's one of the guys that kind of went out there and posted signs out in the desert where people could find water. And he was one of the guys that started the Chamber of Commerce in Los Angeles. But the biggest thing he did, and really nobody ever discusses this or knows about it, and we emphasize it in our book, is the city of Santa Monica would not be what it is today without him. In fact, um, it, yeah, it would be nothing like it. At the time, they everybody wanted to make Santa Monica the port city instead of San Pedro. They wanted it to be the port there for Los Angeles to uh, deliver you know goods back and forth. And uh, there was a big battle going on between the city of San Pedro and Santa Monica. 
to see who would get the port. And Parsons was one of the real, you know, he loved Santa Monica. It was beautiful. In his diaries, he talks about going down to the beach there and going to the bathhouses and going playing tennis with his friends and having running in. I don't know if you know who Doc Goodfellow is. He's in our story, too. But he was known as a gunfighter surgeon. Hmm. And he was the surgeon in town during the OK Corral. And he's the one that took her of Virgil when he got shot and, and uh, you know, taking the bullets out of his arm. But he lived in L.A. and I believe San Francisco in his later years. But he was good friends with Parsons. And he talks about running into Goodfellow. And I think his daughter at the beach on Santa Monica, they were just walking on the beach. Anyway, he loved Santa Monica. Mm -hmm. So he fought that tooth and nail. And he is probably the one most responsible for San Pedro becoming, uh, San Pedro, that was at Wilmington, that area there where the ports are, mm-hmm. um, becoming the ports and that Santa Monica being preserved. Because oh. if it wasn't for him, Santa Monica would have been trash. It would have been a, a port city with ships coming in and out. And and he made sure it was preserved as a a, a, a place for tourists to go and surf and, and fish and uh, the pier and the hotels there, the you know, boardwalk, and uh, there was a uh, a roller coaster there. And if it wasn't for Parsons, and again, he never gets credit for this, uh, things would be very, very different today. Hmm. So did um, did the Earps notoriety make it more difficult for them to run this this blind pig operation? Or? Yeah, uh, there's another th- a theme that we discuss in the book is that we, you know, felt that they were so well qualified really to do this. They'd spent their whole life, you know, running saloons, gambling. They were all lawmen. Uh, several of them, uh, like I said, were uh, involved in the Civil War, the Mexican-American War. And they were like perfectly situated to uh, have this blind pig. And, and like you said, their notoriety, they, you know, they were pretty famous at the time. And it appears uh, that uh, Nick in the home and um, Newton, the half-brother, would steer some of the other veterans uh, to James Blind Pig. He kind of had his own publicity agents living right there in the home. Mm-hmm. And there was a lot of competition. There were other people involved, uh, uh, Horatio Bolster and P.J. Flynn. And uh, so these guys were all veterans. And uh, they all, it was mainly the veterans who were fleecing the veterans there. It was the veterans that owned these blind pigs and were making a lot of money on the soldiers' homes, uh, veterans. Um, but yes, their notoriety definitely helped. Everybody kind of wanted to know and hang out with these guys who were known throughout the West as being marshals and gunmen and one article called the Wyatt Earp Revolver Man and, uh, Pretty much any time the herbs are mentioned, and we documented this really well in the footnotes. There were so many we couldn't put them all, but mm-hmm. uh, four or five, six footnotes. That pretty much any time the herbs name is mentioned in a newspaper anywhere, it would be the famous Herp <laughs> brothers or the famous Wyatt Herp, the gunman of the Old West. Or um, so that definitely didn't hurt. Are you able to mention which battles, which Civil War battles the Herps uh, were involved in, and what their roles were in general? Yeah, well, yeah, um, with Father Newton, it was the Mexican-American War. Mm-hmm. Um, with the brothers, um, so Newton, the half-brother, who was also in the home, um, James and uh, Virgil were were all uh, involved. Like I said, James got, and Newton, Newton was injured in the Civil War, but James um, 
definitely lost use of one of his arms because of it. Uh, off the top of my head, I can't tell you exactly what battles. Um, uh, a good friend of mine, uh, Western author, he has a new book out uh, recently too, and uh, uh, he's actually doing an art- writing an article on Newton Earp mm-hmm. right now in his whole career. Newton hasn't been well-researched before. He's a, kind of the brother in the shadows that, you know, he was a half-brother, so he wasn't he got married early on and settled down and had kids where all the other brothers were off in Dodge City and Wichita and um, Cheyenne and all these uh, um, Deadwood. Uh, they were always around, uh, involved with liquor and whatever. So nobody's really written much about Newton, but he had a pretty distinguished military career. And Roy actually just gave a lecture in tombstone uh in october and i actually ran out there to listen to it talk about his research he's writing an article now and he went through all the battles that newton was involved in i had no idea how um some some very famous uh battles and all he should have an article coming out in a few months about it he's working on it mm-hmm. for anyone who's interested there's it's called the wild west history association you can join and they have a journal that comes out about four times a year and it it's, I kind of call it the uh, New England uh, Journal of Medicine, the equivalent of that. It, it, this this uh, magazine is very well-researched and footnoted. And anyway, Roy's going to have an article out. I'm not exactly sure. It may be mid-next year in that journal talking about Newton and his military career, and it was pretty amazing. Uh, this talk was about an hour and a half long, and uh, Newton had a – it was very prominent. And, and also uh, uh, Virgil and James. And it, it's documented off the top of my head. I can't tell you exactly what battles they were involved in, but it's it's all there in the literature. Do you know, um, were, were they officers or enlisted? Um, yeah, I think they were enlisted. Um, as I remember, I'm trying to think. Um, um, I, I'm thinking somewhere in the area of Peoria or something, Illinois, they enlisted. I, we mentioned in our book, where they enlisted. Mm-hmm. And then, um, yeah, I believe it was in the Peoria area where they enlisted, um and um, uh, in Monmouth, Illinois, uh, Wyatt was born in Monmouth, and I believe in, in the towns where the Earps lived there for a little while. Uh, I've been to Wyatt's home. You can go visit the home and the room Wyatt was born in there. Mm-hmm. Uh, but on the town square, I believe it's Monmouth, there's a, uh, a monument to the Civil War uh, veterans who lived in that town, mm-hmm. and their names are on the wall there. Uh, you can see a James Earp and Virgil Earp. Mm-hmm. along with all the other veterans of the Civil War and those who died there, too. Mm-hmm. Was the family very, um, like, very patriotic, or is it, um, or was their military service just, from for them, you know, just some one of the things they did in a, in a very storied life? Yeah, well, I think both. I think they were patriotic, and two, I think that was the thing that you did at that time as young men, and, uh, and it's funny, the, the family has leanings, they're Democratic. Uh, they're Democrats at one time, and later years they're sort of Republicans. And the father was a Democrat, so the party leadings kind of um, varied. And uh, um, but but I uh, they, I think they were very patriotic. And uh, you know, like I said, Virgil and uh, and James, uh, you know, signed up for the Civil War as soon as they could. And then uh, you know, Wyatt at one point, and it's depicted in one of the movies. You know, he tried to run away from home at a young age to sign up and was caught by his father. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, he was 13 years old or 14, something like that at the time. And yeah. his father 
caught him before he could sign up, but he wanted to help out with his brothers too. Mm -hmm. It makes me wonder what their uh, Civil War experiences, what that contributed to uh, what they did later. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Yeah, definitely interviews, you know, back to their whole life. Like I said, Wyatt was named after, I think it was Wyatt Barry Stapp was the sergeant. Mm -hmm. Nicholas, father Nicholas Sergeant in the Mexican-American War, and he took a real liking and admired him, and he named uh, Wyatt, uh, you know, Wyatt stands with Wyatt Barry Stapp Earp, mm -hmm. and uh, named him after his military uh, colleague. Mm -hmm. So he definitely affected his life, Wyatt you know, lived with that name his whole life. Um, and, you know, they, these guys were tough guys. And, um, you know, a lot of people at times will call Wyatt a bad guy and this and that. He was involved in prostitution. He was a bouncer and he was in bars and he gambled. And But like I said, the gambling and saloons and the, 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 the gambling was actually quite prestigious at that time. The top gamblers, you know, Doc Holliday and all were Bat Masterson, they, Luke Short, they all were you know, pretty well known around circles and famous for that. And, you know, those experiences all led to them being what they were. Why was a tough guy? You didn't mess with him. And, mm. you know, his father was a very tough, demanding oh, guy, Nicholas. <laughs> and it's very well documented. He was very strict with them. Mm -hmm. And uh, they, they all turned out, uh, none of them backed away from a fight ever. I think what I read about Nicholas was that not only was he tough, he was like... <laughs> violent temperament violent and very temperamental yeah i don't know if you ever read there's the rousseau diaries and uh um a physician's wife uh rousseau was the last name mm -hmm. uh she wrote diaries when nicholas Earp led a party a uh, wagon train across the country uh in the i can't remember the 1860s or whatever uh and uh, several families went together the curtis family the rousseaus and they went across country, and Nicholas was the head of the outfit, and she wrote all along about some of the things he would do. Uh, he was pretty temperamental and kind of somewhat violent with the boys and uh, the kids on, on, on the trip. Yeah, he wasn't another guy that you didn't really mess around with, and uh, uh, they I think they ended up pretty much hating each other towards the end, but... Uh, the Curtises actually became kind of famous people, and they're discussed in our book who went across uh, the country with them. Uh, they were lawyers and became judges in California and San Bernardino. Mm -hmm. And I think in the later years, they kind of made up, and they're discussed in our book, too. Uh, mm -hmm. um, Nicholas Earp, the father, became president of the San Bernardino Pioneer Society in his older years. And the, these pioneers that had come across the country together and uh, had lived in those times, hmm. had a group and used to meet fairly frequently, and they had a newsletter that Nicholas contributed to. So that's uh, just the idea of having an association of you remember back in the day when we pioneered across country that, that no one had really gone over before. Yeah. And now you're just reminiscing about it 20 or 30 years later. It's so amazing to think of the hardships that they have. You know, we drive across country in our air-conditioned cars with bottled cold water, and, mm. and you know, it can be kind of misery at time for the kids. You know, when are we going to get there? When are we set? But these people went across country. The wagon train didn't know where they were going to get their next water, had to deal with outlaws and um, some unfriendly Indians on the way. Mm -hmm. um, um that's all documented in their trip. Uh, they've had those types of encounters. And, 
the suffering that they went through just trying to get to the next water hole yeah and um no no good roads and you know mm -hmm. we all know what happened with the donner party in the winter going through those hills and yeah. um there were some tough people i'll tell you yeah yeah and obviously native americans were in living in parts of these places but yeah these these pioneers were kind of going into an area that they right they were going into their hunting grounds and their areas and mm -hmm. killing their buffalo and so uh but these pioneers yeah, so, they, they didn't have the skills to like they were just hey we're gonna head out and i think a lot of them were just unprepared for the the environments that they encountered but some made it through yeah, I mean, yeah, absolutely. You know, in medical emergency, there weren't a doctor. There's documented cases of people coming down with appendicitis, you know, and these trips with no doctor or surgeon around and um, just the hardships they went through, amputations and injuries and disease out in the middle of nowhere, with no water and lack of food and uh, bandits coming by and stealing from them. And um, those are some tough times. And these guys, these people... The, amazing the number of times that Wyatt, Wyatt was back and forth across the country. Our first chapter in the book is entitled The, the Wandering Earp Band of Brothers, mm -hmm. and uh, it essentially talks about how many times that Nicholas was back and forth across the country during these times when, uh, you know, the 1860s or so, when there were no roads and a lot of violence along the way, and you didn't know where the next water hole or food was coming from, and mm -hmm. They were a, a, a really tough breed that kind of set the way. Do you know if um, when they were running this operation in the old soldier's home, did they, I would guess they had firearms? The, um, the, the there were police. The, the soldier's home had their own police department. Is that what you're speaking of? Or? No, just the, did the herbs keep guns, you know, handy? Um, oh. Or was that even allowed? Were they, you know, how did they manage that? Do you know? Yeah, I'm sure they probably had some hidden away, but I, I don't know uh, if they were able to carry them out in the open. I don't right. know if you ever heard of the Sharky Fitzsimmons fight. Uh, one of the other things that led to a lot of infamy for Wyatt, uh, he refereed the World uh, Prize fight, hmm. Sharky and Fitzsimmons, in uh, 1896. And uh, he was picked as the referee. This was a huge fight that gamblers were spending a ton of money on. And Wyatt owned racehorses and all, and... Um, you know, he hung out in tough crowds at that time, the gamblers and the saloons. Mm -hmm. And I guess he wore his, his gun into the ring, and he said he forgot he had it on. He just always wore it. <laughs> it was hidden under his coat. But as the fight started, somebody said, hey, that referee's got a gun under his coat. And the police arrived and arrested him. It was a huge controversy to start the fight. And then the fight ended in a huge controversy, too. And uh, we talk about that. Uh, that's a whole other story. There's books written about that, about that particular fight. Mm -hmm. Um all the, all the, what happened there and why it ended up in a lot of trouble after the fight mm. refereeing, he called it on a foul to the guy who was, to the guy who was losing and uh, Sharky who was uh, going down and said he was hit below the belt. And then the gamblers went crazy because they lost so much money and they said it was a mm. fixed fight. Anyway, that's a whole nother story. There's books on <laughs> written on that, but uh, to answer your question, I don't know that they were, I don't think they were allowed to have a, carry a weapon and uh, mm. outright now right. um they, they did and there was an episode where james uh in 19 
05 or 06, I believe, he got really drunk. It was, I believe, right after Virgil died, and it was near Thanksgiving time. Hmm. And he went into L.A. and got really drunk and arrested. And um, they ended up... Normally, he'd be in jail for some time, but because it was right before Thanksgiving, they let him right out. And I think, as I remember, he was interviewed somewhere. He says, lucky I usually have my gun with me. Lucky I didn't, because you know, then he would have really been in trouble. Oh, yeah. So I think you mentioned uh, a number of the resources you two used for your research. Was there is there anything else you didn't mention that you used? Yeah, one thing that's really, really useful in um, this regard, and we leaned heavily on a uh, uh, Don did a lot of research through it. Is uh, the veterans all have a? There's a national uh, archives, and the veterans all have files on them. Uh, the ones in the home, and they have a sheet, a data sheet on each veteran that you can pull up. And uh, you know, you have to do some things and go through some hoops to have access through it. But it was amazingly helpful. Um, it essentially mentions when they first enrolled, what their civil war or their war experience in, entailed. Um, if, if they had any injuries during the Civil War, uh, what if they were in one of the soldier homes and where and when and for how long, and when they died, where they were buried. A lot, Most of the people, uh, the veterans who died in the uh, Sotel Soldiers Home, uh, it's called the National Branch, or the, uh, the Pacific Branch of the Soldiers Home, mm-hmm. um, uh, the official name. Uh, they were buried in the cemetery next door, and so... Um, in that data sheet on each veteran, it tells exactly where they're buried. And, and we do in our book, let's say our appendix one, for those veterans that didn't make it into the book itself, there's a long appendix one. And we go over, like Jeremiah Johnson, like I mentioned, some of the fellows we discussed before, uh, when they died, wh- where they're buried, what plot. You can uh, walk, I've, I've done it, you can walk and visit and pay respects uh, at their graves there. Do you know, was there a predominance as far as where these veterans uh, were from or what units they served in? Yeah, yeah, that's a good question. We do talk about that in the book, too. Uh, we did a, the, There's a breakdown in the book, and I can't remember the exact numbers, but you know, first of all, how many of the veterans were born out of, our, out of the country? And there, I think Ireland was the number one uh, country where most of the veterans who lived in the soldiers' home came from, but then there were also a lot from... Uh, Germany and all over the world, and um, uh, yeah, and then also their occupations. And the main occupations were farmer, carpenter. Uh, it, it, like I said, it's all discussed in the book. Uh, but there were um, uh, fair, the, a number of lawyers and doctors, and uh, and uh, in the book we kind of emphasize that this soldier's home was different than a lot of the others. The uh, diversity of, uh, you know, most of the people in the Kansas home, not, not everybody, of course, but in the Kansas home were from Kansas or that area. But in this, the L.A. branch, the Pacific branch of the uh, soldier's home was so attractive. The grounds were beautiful. Like I said, park-like settings. You're three and four miles from the Pacific Ocean. You're near L.A. Uh, the weather, the um, it was so attractive, and then also the medical care was highly rated. People would come from all over to have mm. procedures. Or we had talked about the story of a gentleman in Arizona that needed eye surgery, couldn't see for a good part of his life, and he he wanted to go to Sotel and have his procedure, and he did there, and all of a sudden he could see for the first time in uh, years. Mm. Uh, the, it was very famous place. Uh, the veterans all knew that this was the place to go. And they all wanted to go 
there if 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 they could. Hmm. Uh, so it was very attractive. So it was different. It was different diversity. There were people from all over the country there. People from all different occupations. Um, things that you did not see in our research of the other soldiers' home, where most of the people that lived there were locals or pretty local. Um, the Pacific Branch was very diverse in every way. Hmm. Interesting. So what part of the research for this book uh, was most enjoyable for you? It's just kind of so neat to have all this come together. Um, it's kind of another long story we talk about in the book, but the, the thing that actually got us writing the book had to do with Don. He, um, like I said, he's known as uh, Virgil Earp's biographer. He wrote um, a pretty well-known book on Virgil Earp in the 1990s. Uh, we, we have a mutual best friend who introduced us. I don't know if you've heard of Lee Silva before, mm -hmm. but um, he was both of our best friends. And he wrote several books on Wyatt Earp. They're excellent. If, if you get a chance and you want to read them, they're long books. Mm -hmm. But he died before completing his uh, series. But he left us a lot of his research, so so we used that a lot of that. And um, Don and Lee were initially writing the wider book together that Lee ended up writing himself, and Don went to work instead on Virgil. Or, and because of that, once you write a book, uh, there was really no other good book on Virgil out there. Uh, family members start contacting you and friends and whatever. And a anyway, uh, an individual found a token. Uh, bought a token that was found in a dump in um, Goldfield where um, Virgil died, and it, it was dug out of a dump but in a with a metal detector and uh, buried, and it said VW Earp on one side and Sautel, California. And that's kind of, he wrote Don when he heard that, uh, when he read Don's book, because Don was really the, expert and the one that knew most about Virgil after researching his book mm -hmm. and asked him, do you know anything about Virgil ever being in Sotel? And Don wrote back to him, this is in the mid-1995, like 1995, 1996, that, yeah, well, I know that uh, Newton was there and Nicholas was there and James, but I really don't know that Virgil was really there. So that was kind of news to Don. And so he wrote back to him, gave him a bunch of information to use, because he was trying to Established the value of this token. Uh, he felt this token could be the most valuable token out there. One with Virgil Earp. He, he was a member of a token society and nobody had ever seen it before. Hmm. Anyway, uh, it kind of got buried. And then about three, two and a half years ago, three years ago, Don was moving and he was going throwing out his old junk and he came into this letter again from this uh, token collector. He was a sheriff in, in Nevada, I believe, at one time and a token collector. And then he wrote, ended up writing an article about the token in one of the magazines using Don's research. Uh, anyway, so Don wrote me and said, look, I found this letter. Do you know anything about Virgil Earp being in Sautel? Anything. Uh, anyway, uh, uh, we started talking. There was some stuff that I had heard about. I have some stuff in my collection mm -hmm. that kind of relates to Virgil and stuff. And we started researching, and all of a sudden we found out Virgil actually spent a good amount of time there in Sautel with his brothers. And, uh, yeah, then we just started digging and digging, and it just became, did become enjoyable because we found so much new stuff that never appears in any book anywhere. And one of the most difficult things was for us was saying it was time to stop and get the book out there. It seemed like every time we were done with the book, we would find some something new. And like the day before the book was total due to the publisher, final edits, finally done, Don finds a 
Wyatt in a town called Dulzura, California, which is a bit north of San Diego. And that's never been in any book anywhere. Nobody's ever mentioned Wyatt being this town, and it's right in our time period. Hmm. And so we had to beg the publisher, please, could we add this back in? We had just turned the manuscript in, and luckily, last minute, they let us make that one edit and add to the book, because it's not in any other book anywhere. Hmm. What uh, Was there a particular question for this book um, that you really worked hardest at trying to get an answer for, or, or maybe you still would like an answer for? Some burning question? Well, yeah, yeah, I would like to, we know, you know, Wyatt wasn't too involved in this operation, but he was there. We have him documented there. And I know, you know, he lived in that L.A. area. I know he, we know he was there and around there. But it would be nice to find a little more um, information about how involved Wyatt was and how much time he spent there exactly. Um, there's no question, and again, we do document in our book that he was around during this time, but he also was, involved in other uh, mining operations and you know, Tonopah and uh, other places. So he wasn't there quite as much. But I know there's probably more information out there. And um, it seems like day by day, Don and I, uh, my co-author, we, we speak quite often. We email each other pretty much daily. Mm -hmm. And we keep finding new little tidbits and things that uh, relate to our book. So, um it, it'd be nice to find a, a little bit more documenting all that, but but we have quite a bit already. Do you know? Did Wyatt ever express disappointment or jealousy that he didn't get to serve in the Civil War? Um, you know, I, I I don't know specifically, but it is well known that I mean, he his dad, like we said, is, was a tough guy. He was a strict master. I mean, if you you know you disobeyed, you got whipped, and um, that was a real risk for him trying to. Uh, uh, run away from home and uh, to to enlist. So we know he wanted to participate, and he uh, he did get whipped for it, and uh, afterwards and uh, punished. And uh, his dad was one of those guys you did not cross. And the fact that he would, but but I I don't know specific mentions of him talking about how he wished he had uh, been there. I, you know, to a young kid, it's all nice. You're shooting guns and whatever. And nobody gets hurt and whatever. But when your brother comes home and has loss of one of his arms and or use of one of his arms and, uh, you know, was nearly killed, and then you hear about the suffering these guys, you know, these guys went through a lot of suffering during the Civil War, mm -hmm. and uh, then it becomes real, and I, I'm sure he felt afterwards he's glad he didn't participate. Mm -hmm. Did, uh, for this for this book, um, did you come across anything that had a really strong emotional impact on you, either positively or negatively? Well, I, I, I think I was pretty touched by the fact that, like I said, uh, most people kind of write off the Earp story after the gunfight at the OK Corral. Now, afterwards, Wyatt had the vendetta where he went out and, uh, uh, you know, chased down the people that had killed uh, Morgan and maimed Virgil. But then the kind of story ends, and everybody's written about everything Wyatt has ever done and ever gone. But it was really kind of touching to see that their family um, – Don calls it like a glue or stickiness, how the Earth family just stuck together and everything they did their whole life and how their pivot point was really, you know, everyone talks about Dodge City, like I said, in Wichita and Deadwood and uh, Fort Worth, Texas and Prescott. And, but their their home base was Southern California, San Bernardino and the L.A. area, and that's where they spent most of their lives. And, again, it's discussed in the book. But it, it was just 
very touching how they did stick together and seem to love each other so much and how they spent, they had one more last hurrah together in the, the first decade of the uh, 20th century in L.A., Santa Monica, Sautel area. Mm-hmm. And for a period of close to 10 years, um, they, they were together. The family was there. White had a sister, uh, Allie Earp, that lived in, or uh, excuse me, Adelia Earp, who lived in San Bernardino. And then there was Allie Earp, Virgil's wife. And mm-hmm. um, they, they all, they, they had one more la- uh, episode together in this Sautel um, uh, blind pig uh, episode. And even when not involved in that, they met together. They, there's the Alexandria Hotel in downtown uh, Los Angeles and the Hollenbeck Hotel, and they were built by um, Billicky, a man named Billicky, and um, we talk about him in our book. He was the one that owned the um, hotel in Tombstone where the Burps hung out after the gunfight, and mm. he was a, a supporter of the Burps. But um, he subsequently moved to uh, California and opened the uh, bought the Hollenbeck and then built the Alexandria. The Alexandria still stands in downtown. And the Earps and all the old Westerners used to hang out there. They would get together. There were beautiful hotels. Mm-hmm. And, um, oh, one more, I don't want to forget a minute. There's an interesting military thing mm-hmm. here, relationship. But um, there's a document of them meeting at the hotel with Billicky and the whole family getting together. And um, we discussed in the book. Billicky was a pretty interesting fellow, a uh, uh, wealthy guy in opening hotels around, uh, like I said, in Tombstone and then Southern California. But he ended up dying on the Lusitania, the oh. the ship, you know, that was sunk, mm-hmm. that led, one of the episodes that led to World War One. Mm-hmm. Uh, he was on that ship, and uh, I believe, was it 19, uh, 1915, 1916? Yeah. Um, but anyway, that was one of the episodes that led to United States becoming involved in World War One, and mm-hmm. uh, he died on the ship. His wife was also on the ship. She survived, but he was a very staunch ally of the Earps and always there to help. And like I said, in Tombstone, that's where the Earp family stayed, and they show it in the movies. So the Earp family all moving to the hotel to get away from the cowboys and the mm-hmm. the sneak attacks that were happening. Mm-hmm. And uh, he was still very friendly with the Earps in the 1900s, and very well documented. They spent time with him. Mm-hmm. And the other Westerners, that, that's another thing that was really interesting to me. And Don and I wrote an article that's going to be appearing in one of the Western magazines a little later next year mm-hmm. uh, called the Earps Fellow Sophisticates. And it's about all the friends that Earps had, all these famous Old West, you know, gunfighters. And, you know, they knew Doc Holliday, they knew Bat Masterson, J.B. Brighton, uh, Luke Short. They knew all these people. And we uh, wrote an article uh, that kind of isn't covered in the book. It's kind of an extension of the book of all their tombstone friends hmm. who happened to end up in Los Angeles and and hang out together in the early 1900s. Wow, that would have been a that would have been a nice get together to to eavesdrop yeah. on. Yeah, yeah. They they used to have the Arizona Pioneers. In fact, Billicky advertised, and we have a picture in the book there. I can't remember what page it's on of one of his ads where he advertises his hotel the Hollenbeck, as a gathering place of the old Arizona Westerners, or uh, I can't remember the exact wording. Mm-hmm. And all the old, they used to get together, you know, once a month or so, all the old John Clum and, uh, you know, who lived in the area, and Parsons and uh, Doc Goodfellow and um, Hooker, you know, there's the, the Hooker family lived in the area, mm-hmm. uh, too. Uh, that's a whole other story, too. Uh, uh, but... 
Uh, he was a famous rancher out there, hmm. the Hooker Ranch. And they, you know, they all got together and, you know, met it. He said it was some, in some of the parks, uh, the local parks, too. It's documented. They would go to a park and have a get-together. Hmm. So apart from filling the historical record, you know, and just giving people more history of the Old West, um, what, what do you hope the book will do for readers? You know, why, why, why research this stuff and write on it? You know, I just, uh, it just kind of fills a hole in the Earp story. Like I said, the story usually ends sometime after the OK Corral event gunfight and the vendetta ride. And then everyone knows you know, why it went to Alaska to Nome and uh, he, he was all over the place. But this, um, we just, there's just, it's not covered in any other book anywhere. And uh, this feels like a whole lot. I, I years ago had gone to the soldier's home with some friends uh, in the uh, uh, 2004 or five-ish. Mm-hmm. And we went and visited. We knew New- uh, Nicholas had died there, was buried there. I knew Newton, the brother, had spent a little time. I didn't really realize how much time he'd spent there. But that was kind of the extent of it. I didn't really realize how that James lived in Sawtell right next door. And so it, I think it fills a hole in Western history. And True West Magazine just did a review on the book in their latest December issue. And they called the book uh, one of the most important Earp books of the last decade. Mm-hmm. Um, so it, it fills in that hole and ties it all together and, a period of the Earp's life that people didn't realize they were all back together again. In mm. fact, you, you've seen the dust jacket for our book. It, it shows mm. the four, the four Earp brothers doing like an okay corral walk down <laughs> and they're all side by side in their black uh, hats. And, mm. uh, but instead of guns, if you look carefully, they're carrying the, the beer bottles and bottles. And then at the top of the hill, they're walking into Sattel and the soldier's home is at the top. Mm-hmm. And Nicholas, or the father, is there with his arms up in the air and a beer bottle in his hand. Mm-hmm. And all the other veterans, there's a veteran behind them and veterans in front of them. Mm-hmm. And they're all cheering them on, uh, so ecstatic that they're uh, coming to the soldier home and bringing alcohol and entertainment with them. Yeah. So I, I think it fills a real hole in Urbiana. And most of the people have read it. Uh, you, you can look at some of the reviews. Uh, we have a few of them on the book, Dust Jacket. Mm-hmm. by some very prominent uh, authors and historians. And they all say that, it, you know, it fills in a, a, a hole in Urpiana and it's a needed needed book. So that's kind of a good feeling to kind of tie the, the last few years of the Earps but it feels, together. It feels like such an American story, too, because it's not just their story. It's, you know, it's Prohibition, Western development, you know, California, the, you know, the transition from the old West to the, you know, the new American society, and uh, it feels very American, you know. Yeah, Chris, you really nailed it with that statement, because that's exactly what we call it, and it, um, it, it's really five stories intertwined. It's not just the story of the herbs. In fact, the herbs are, you know, they're the main topic of the book, but they're pretty much the string that ties the story together. But uh, Don and I, when we tell people, you know, it's not just an herb story. It's There's five top intertwined topics, uh, but most prominent are the vet- veterans of the 1800s uh, wars, Civil, Mexican-American, Indian War, Spanish-American War. So it's a story about all of them. It's a story about pro- prohibition and illegal alcohol sales, bootlegging, bootlegging speakeasies. Um, and uh, it, it is uh, also a story of, like you said, the development of early Santa Monica, Malibu, Hollywood, Beverly Hills, Sawtell, Los Angeles. It's a story about all that. Mm. Anyone who reads the book, if they're not into the herbs, then if they're into any of those other topics, I think they'll enjoy the book. And then it's 
a story, I think most important of all, and I'd like to emphasize this point, of the soldiers' homes and why they were necessary and how these guys, you know, they served their country and they had nowhere to go and no one to care for them and uh, may have been disabled and couldn't find work afterwards. And all of a sudden, you know, they, they had a place to go. And the soldiers' home developed through the years. For, you know, like I said, the first one was in Togus, Maine, but then they started appearing in Milwaukee and Dodge, uh, Fort Dodge, and all around the country, mm-hmm. um, Napa. But what happened through the years, and then in our final chapters, we tied this all together. Um, the 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 um, Congress in 1921 developed the Veterans Bureau, and um, then in 1930, President Hoover merged the Veterans Bureau, the National Homes, and the Pension Bureau, and that became the VA system. Yeah. So our our book is really a story of the, the really the main topic is other than the herbs, like I said, which is the string that ties it together, is how the Veterans Administration came about. Mm-hmm. This, this is how this, it all became about. And then the Veterans Administration that we all know about today started right there, the Wadsworth VA Hospital now at uh, near UCLA there. Um, you know, that was the soldier's home. That was the uh, hospital for the soldier's home at one time. Now, obviously, it's been modernized and rebuilt and knocked mm-hmm. down multiple times. And, and we discussed that in our book, too, what happened through the years. Yeah. But this was the beginning of the Veterans Administration. Interesting. So you mentioned uh, some writing projects that you're working on now. Do you have a, what's your next uh, book-length work? Do you have one? Yeah, yeah. Don and I have been working. We've turned out to be great, pretty good partners. We're so different. Mm-hmm. Uh, all right, we have a big age difference. And like I said, Don's published a lot of books. Um we're from different generations and uh, have different views on stuff. I'm really verbose, as you can tell, and Don's kind of a quiet, uh, the quiet, silent uh, type. <laughs> okay. um, so we, 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 we're totally like opposite, but we've turned out to be great partners for one another because of it. Uh, uh, he's more into the intense research. I'm more uh, like to go visit the places. And, uh, you know, I've, we've made several field trips to Sautel. And uh, I'll tell you, too, the soldiers home. Until you've walked the grounds, you learn so much. You know, you can read about it and read about it, but when you walk the grounds and see where 4th Street is and where the shops were on 4th Street and how it relates to the soldier's home and and the um, the uh, train stop there that's still... There's a few buildings still remaining from when the works were there, the chapel. And on our book, uh, if you look at the back of the dust jacket, is the chapel. This, this dust jacket is totally period. It was... Uh, a commissioned work by a well-known artist, Gary Zavoli. He's my favorite Western artist. And uh, the chapel is all period correct. And um, the, the building on the back, that's the chapel uh, where most of the veterans, after they died, their services were held there. And Nick, Nicholas uh, Earp's services were held there before he was buried. It's it's really nice walking around and, and to be there. But anyway, uh, so we do have... Uh, a few projects we're working on. We finished an article that's, that looks like it's going to be the lead article. I don't want to say which magazine yet, but one of the very well-known Western magazines. And it'll probably be later next year. And uh, the other well-known, there's True West and Wild West, and also is going to cover what sounds like probably the lead article in their magazine uh, sometime probably later next year. Um, and those are written, so we've worked on those. And we also, uh, Don and I, have, the last few years, put out these Christmas brochures, holiday brochures together. And we're in the third of the series. We just finished that. And they're kind of little booklets. And the most recent one involves our book. It's kind of 
we included a lot of the photos that did, yeah we initially had 180 photos and I think we ended up being allowed about 90. Oh. So a lot of great photos didn't make the actual book, but we put a lot of them into the brochure. Oh, wow. So we've been working on those. And we've talked a bit about a, another book. Don, um, and again, this is discussed in the previous, so I, I hate to keep repeating myself, but um, you know, Don was officially retired. He, he oh. wrote his last book, was called Empire of Sand, and it came out about four years ago, and he said, that's it. He, you know, I'm not writing any more books. And he called me and another friend of mine, uh, a friend of ours, Garner Polensky, who wrote a book called White Earth in San Diego, over to his house one day. He said, look, guys, I'm giving you all my research. I'm giving you all my old books. I'm not writing another book. I'm done. And then it's funny. The minute he said that, he gave us all his research material. And, and the next thing you know, he's, he keeps coming up with more ideas for me to write books on and for me. And then all of a sudden he came up with this Virgil Earp thing. And then I was shocked when he said, hey, what do you think about writing a book on this? It looks like we have enough. And I said, yeah, yeah, I think I'd like that, <laughs> to, yeah. to be on a book with uh, Don. So we don't have a specific – In the when we started this, I was writing a book uh, on a, a painter by the name of Victor Clyde Forsythe. I don't know if you ever heard of him, but he was an amazing guy. And if you're interested, you can look online. There's an 18-page article online. But the article ended up making Wild West Magazine. But what's interesting about this guy is his parents were in Tombstone at the time of the gunfight, the OK Corral, and said they witnessed it. And it, and when he was born in 1885, so after the gunfight, but in Orange, California. But then when in his older years, he became a very well-known artist. And in 1952, he painted his rendition of the gunfight at the OK Corral, but it was based on eyewitness accounts. So most people say it's the best depiction of the gunfight, and uh, some people call it the uh, the most accurate. Uh, other than having a photo of the actual gunfight, this is the best depiction. And the reason being, his parents witnessed it were there, so he heard stories from them their whole life. You know, he met Wyatt and Virgil Earp in L.A. in the early 1900s, he talked with a lot of the participants. But anyway, I was working on a book on him and got side-railed when my friend Lee Silva had passed away and got involved in some of his projects instead and then working on this book. So that's on the list maybe to get finished one day. But the article did come out, but the actual book is not complete yet. Uh, Victor Clyde Foresight. And... Um, uh, a couple other little things that uh, we have talked about, maybe uh, another book we're passing back and forth a topic now, but uh, nothing to fit on that. But we definitely have several articles in the making, and we just talked about another one just recently, but mm. they haven't written that one yet. Well, where can people find you um, or, or Don on the web? Do you have a uh, website or social media? Okay, now Don, that, that's where we're a good part of because Don really is not into that stuff at all. I mean, he has... <laughs> He's not on Facebook. He's not. A, whenever I come to his house with my iPhone, <laughs> you know, he doesn't do anything like that. He says, oh, look up whatever on that contraption you have in your hand. <laughs> he's uh, he's in his 90s, so he's uh -huh. uh, he's an amazing researcher, but he's not into tech. But here's a way for those on Facebook. I actually run a site there. Um, it's called Wild West Collectors. Mm -hmm. And so anybody who's interested, I, I would really suggest... Uh, joining that site. Uh, it's a private site, so you have to put a request in and then I'll approve it. And it, it, it's really amazing. We have pretty much all the biggest names in the Wild West field are met with us. All the authors of all the books I'm sure you've read on Wyatt Earp. And um, I know most of these guys are good friends. And everybody's there and everybody's sharing their collections. And as I mentioned before, I'm a collector. 
And I have some pretty amazing stuff in my collection. I have several items that Doc Holliday had with him at the time of his death. Oh, wow. uh, his case, his casekeeper. I have his medicine bottles that he he had with him when he died. Um, uh, I have his shaving kit, his actual shaving kit, mm-hmm. um, and it's, the provenance is impeccable. Uh, and, and so I've been sharing. I have a lot of other stuff too relating to him mm-hmm. and his family. But I've been sharing that on on the site. Uh, one, you know, slowly through the years, mm-hmm. I've been sharing my collection, and uh, I have several of Wyatt's belongings and personal letters, handwritten letters, and, mm. um, and but stuff. people have amazing stuff there, and it's hidden away. That's the thing about collections, and if it's in a museum, everyone sees it, but there's a lot of private collectors out there that have amazing stuff. You know, the knife that Billy the Kid was carrying, you know, when he was shot by Pat Garrett. Uh, mm. There's a, a lot of stuff out there, but nobody ever knows about it or sees it because it's in private collections. Uh, Wow. And um, people are sharing it on that site. So, uh, like I said, all the the names of the field, pretty much like name an author, and I, I can tell you he's probably on our Wild West Collector site. And we all discuss stuff, and it's a good way to contact um, each other. I don't have a website particularly for the book. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, uh, your readers are free to contact me by email. I don't mind you giving my email if, if you think they'd be interested. Sure, if you and, want. Pardon? Yeah, yeah, I can. Um, I'll, I'll post that in the show notes. Then I, I don't have it handy, but I can do that if you want me to. Yeah, I, I get contacted all the time because Lee Silva, I told you, was my best friend, and he's the was a very well known herb author and had a lot of friends in the herb community. He knew everybody, and mm-hmm. uh, he died kind of pretty suddenly in two thousand fourteen. Oh. And so I've kind of been the contact point for all his old friends. I get letters. I just got a letter. I had a letter the other day, and then I had a letter that some people don't know how to get a hold of me, so they sent, found me as a physician and wrote a letter to the hospital and eventually got to me months later. Uh, now I'm t- 10 months later, I'm finally answering this poor guy's letter the other day, and hmm. uh, he wrote, now we're writing back and forth, and he said he's so happy to be able to contact me because he really loved Lee, and he was wondering what happened and how he died. And um, So, uh, yeah, that, that's fine if any of you... Uh, listeners would like to contact me. I'd be happy to talk to them. But the best way would be join my Wild West Collectors Facebook page. Okay. I think the closest thing I have to a Wild West coll- uh, collectible is a, a picture, a photo I, I took with Val Kilmer and Michael Bean. <laughs> oh, really? Okay. Well, that's what I definitely like. Yeah, yeah, I've met both of them. They're good guys. I actually just um, uh, I met Val Kilmer a couple years ago and in Tombstone, uh, two years ago, they had the 25th anniversary of the Tombstone movie. Mm-hmm. And all the actors, not all of them, but mo- a lot of the actors got together in Tombstone. And I got to spend time with them. I was uh, helped out with the event, so I drove a lot of the actors around uh, mm-hmm. uh, town and back and forth to the Tucson airport. And, uh, yeah, Michael Bean was there. And, uh, um and uh, Peter Schreko, you know, that uh, he's gotten to be a good friend. He's on the Wild West Collector's site with us. He, mm. he played Texas Jack in the Tombstone movie. Uh, I don't know if you remember him. He was sort of. one of the, the two that came out in the gunfight when Wyatt came into town. They were all of a sudden a gunfight broke out. And it was Buck uh, Taylor and Peter Schreko, Texas Jack, mm. Vermillion. And uh, um, so he's, he's on our Wild West Collector's site. He was in town, too, and he, he's a really neat guy. Um, all these people are on the Wild West Collector site, so I don't know if, if you're on Facebook, I'd love to have you there. Uh, 
Um, and you could share your photo with Val Kilmer and uh, Michael Dean. <laughs> yeah, they were both. Yeah, they were great to to meet. Um, nice guys. Let me tell you a real quick story about that. Just kind of funny. Just real quick. Uh, sure. uh, years ago, we we're uh, in town. Um, uh, it was the 125th anniversary of the gunfight at the OK Corral, mm-hmm. and a lot of Westerners uh, came into town. And Michael Bean, uh, he was in the middle of shooting a movie back east, but they paid to get him into town to sign autographs. Mm-hmm. And he was staying in the same hotel I was staying. So we actually, he was a really neat guy, and we actually got to spend a lot of time talking with him and stuff. Mm-hmm. And it was interesting. He told us that that was the first time he had ever been in Tombstone. Uh, he had never been in Tombstone, actually, Tombstone before. <laughs> that event, the movie was all film, mostly filmed out in um, Mescal and and Old Tucson, uh, these stages and whatever. Mm-hmm. But they, the, the crew actually didn't come into Tombstone. And I believe he was born somewhere in Arizona. I don't know if it was... I can't remember. Somewhere in Arizona he was born, but he had never been to Tombstone. So mm-hmm. that was kind of interesting. We were telling him about the town and driving him around and stuff because he didn't know where he was and <laughs> <That's> how to <laughs> get no, it, was, it was cool he was such a cool guy he really uh, this was you know 20 ish years ago but uh yeah 15 years ago but yeah no i got this picture just about two or three years ago so yeah it was pretty fun oh really where, yeah. where were you uh it was actually the philadelphia comic-con uh or oh. the greater philadelphia something like that but they get all kinds of stars there to do photo and I don't normally pay for these photos, but having a picture with those two, I couldn't pass it up. I had to do it. <laughs> yeah, it's funny how they do that. Uh, several of the people who were at the event, uh, Joanna Pacula and uh, uh, the big nose Kate in the movie, and then Dana um, Wheeler, um, she played Wyatt Swart, Maddie in the event, too. And mm-hmm. they were telling me the way they got them to the event is, they, yeah, they do those comic signings, and they have a manager who managed a different manager than their film manager right. who uh, sets up those types of events. And that's how they were brought into town for this tombstone reunion. Yeah. Yeah. It's fun stuff. Cool. Well, um, that's all the questions I have. Do you have any final thoughts or words? No, I just wanted to thank you. I, I just, I was so happy when I heard you contacted me because, uh, or us, uh, because uh, I, the earth crowd is showing a lot of interest in the book and, uh, we're getting a lot of great feedback from the Earth people, but the book is really mainly about veterans and mm-hmm. uh, the VA system and the soldiers' home. And I was so uh, happy and honored that you found us and uh, mm-hmm. wanted to talk to us because um, I, I think the veterans would probably have more interest in our book than than the Earth crowd even. Mm-hmm. So thank you so much for your time. Yeah, yeah, I appreciate it. Um, th- thanks again. Thank you for listening. If you like this podcast, Military History Inside Out, please subscribe to it and rate it if you can. If you want more military history ranging from the ancient to the modern, please visit warscholar.org or militaryhistorypodcast.com to sign up for my weekly newsletter and keep track of my latest posts. You can also find written interviews and my social media links there. Thanks for listening.